I'm Jessica Harris, and welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burned spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come, join me at my welcome table. Hi, my name's Mitzi Pratt, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Patrick Dunn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is John Barkley, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Anne McBride, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Betty Fussell, and I, too, am sitting at the welcome table. Forty-three point seven degrees north, seven point three five degrees east. The Riviera, Part Two, the hills, the back country. The Riviera, on every street a gay casino, where continentals sip their vino and leave their fortunes to chance. The Riviera, where matrons draped in Paris fashions prolong the twilight of their passions in mad pursuit of romance. Every gay mademoiselle is disarming some maharaja with the daring of her décolletage. Life is so completely zany. By the Mediterranean Sea Ah, the Riviera Where every golden coat of suntan Has cost the gold of more than one man Who wasn't warned in advance He may take to his heart Nice may be nice But in recent years If I'm in the south of France My motto is Head to the hills. The hills overlooking the glorious strip of waterfront that is the Riviera are a backcountry of twisting roads lined with millennial olive trees that leads into an area where tiny villages perch precariously on hillsides. The air is clear, and just about every garden has an orange tree or two. It is there that my college friend Dana Sardet, who married a Frenchman, is lucky enough to live in a medieval village, Lagode. Her village is the France of wish and desire, with the tiny bakery that is the hangout for local folks who pass by once or twice a day to pick up fresh croissants or a baguette or two still warm from the wood-fired oven. It is the France of small cafes where locals watch passers-by and know their neighbors with whom they share the day's news. Upon my arrival at her home, my friend greeted me with a jar of orange marmalade made from the oranges from her own trees. Now that's my idea of a great friend. She is, 
and I love her town. Sleepy and stage set stunning, it's less than a half an hour away from the bustle of downtown Nice. That's the beauty of the backcountry of the Côte d'Azur. Before the Côte d'Azur was known as a winter mecca for the rich and famous, it was known for its temperate climate that allowed natives to grow early vegetables for Parisian tables. But vegetables were only the tip of the iceberg, because the region, with its soft winds and gentle hillsides, also grew the flowers that became the spine of the French perfume industry. The town of Grasse still remains the epicenter of it all. The industry harks back to the Italians, as do many things that we think of as French. In the 16th century, tanning was not what it is today. Then, one of the symbols of nobility and a must for nobles, and for those who aspired to be taken for nobles, were gloves. Catherine de' Medici, daughter of Lorenzo, arrived at court to marry King Henry II, who in fact was way more interested in Diane de Poitiers. Catherine brought many Italian customs with her that became a part of daily life in France, including that of using perfume on gloves to disguise the leather's malodorous qualities. Catherine is not always looked on kindly by history. She was an incredibly powerful woman in her time, some say the most powerful woman in Europe. She is held responsible for the St. Bartholomew's Day massacres of Huguenots, and it's rumored that more than one of her enemies died from her knowledge of poisons that she mixed adeptly with perfumes that she also used expertly. Perfumes, gloves, poisons. The perfume and glove industry became famous thanks to her. In the 19th century, Grasse, the city that was its epicenter, with the development of the Parisian perfume industry that packaged the essences in bottles, no longer had primacy. Instead, the town and surrounding area turned into suppliers of raw material, the essences that are used in the manufacture of perfume, and today that remains the area's major role. That tale and others of the history of perfume and its international uses are well told at the Musée International de la Parfumerie in Grasse. Catherine de' Medici's today is only a faint whiff of history in Grasse, where in season the air is redolent of lavender with hints of jasmine and violet and rose. Now, while I love perfume as much as the next one, I love jewelry and antique jewelry more. And my favorite spot in Grasse is across the street at the Provençal Museum of Costume and Jewelry. This tiny jewel box of a museum celebrates the rich diversity of dress of the Provençal countrywomen, from the super-rich to the plebeian. It is the place to find the history of the Provençal prince known as Andienne, and to learn about the quilted skirts called bouti 
that form a part of the traditional dress of Provence. As for me, I just love to gaze at the glorious jewelry that was, and in many cases still is, a major part of every Provençal woman's traditional wardrobe. They have a wonderful collection of the gold crosses decorated with rose-cut diamonds designed to glint in the 18th century candlelight. The brilliant crosses were symbols of piety, but have secular names like Capucine, Nasturtium, or regal ones like Maintenon, the very religious wife of Louis XIV. They were worn on silken or velvet ribbons, as were others of coral and finely wrought enamel. Châtelaine, and they have several of them, were the symbol of the authority of the woman of the household and held the keys to various cabinets that contained household commodities as well as other implements of what was then women's work. Now, while the symbols that they hold, keys, scissors, thimbles, and the like, may seem trivial, the châtelaines are displayed, and they're in gold and enamel, and truly pay homage to the work that those unknown and unglorified housewives did in maintaining the homes and the culture of the region. Olives are the nucleus of the region's culture. The trees shade the backyards, and families with one or two still bring their harvests to the communal mills that are found throughout the region. The olive trees were first brought to the region by the Greeks more than 2,500 years ago, and there are more than 60 varieties. Called the immortal tree because new branches grafted onto old rootstocks make the trees live virtually forever. Harvest usually begins in August, with olives destined for table use usually picked by hand. Those destined for the oil mills are knocked off the trees and shaken into nets. The different types of olives produce different flavors of oils, and a stop at any of the olive vending establishments is sure to offer a tasting. Then, there are the myriad different marinades that are used. Some mix the olives with the citrus that also abounds in the region. Others make ample and delicious use of the herbs that are another part of the bounty, with olives coupled with thyme and rosemary. Still others combine olives with chilies, both mild and hot. Of course these olives turn up as nibbles everywhere, from neighborhood bars and bistros to on tables at some pretty fancy restaurants, and the oil is a hallmark of the region's cuisine, both lowbrow and upscale. On that famous thoroughfare With their noses in the air High hats and colored collars White spats and fifteen dollars Spending every dime For a wonderful time If you're blue and you don't know where to go to Why don't you go where Harlem flits Putting on the wrist For anyone involved in the world of food No matter how tangentially it's essential to visit another small local museum to learn more about the man who transformed the modern professional kitchen. Auguste Escoffier 
was a man of the region, and his birthplace, in the town of Villeneuve-Loubet, in the hills above Cagnes-sur-Mer, has been transformed into a small museum in his honor. A short walk through the narrow streets of the town bring you to the house where the man who created Pesh Melba and who transformed the kitchens of the Savoy and Carlton Hotels in London and that of the Paris Ritz was born. Escoffier was considered, in the words of one of his contemporaries, the cook of kings and the king of cooks. Long before today's fresh local seasonal debate began, Escoffier was fighting for lightness, simplicity, and quality. His house museum celebrates him and his legacy with exhibits detailing the kitchens of his time. There is a wonderfully reproduced Provençal kitchen complete with a red brick potager. Now the potager were the wood-fired ancestors of today's stoves. This one has multiple stew holes or burners. There are copies of his correspondence with the notables of his times and a collection of menus that dates back to 1820 and includes some signed ones of memorable dinners with guests like Charles de Gaulle, Picasso, and Yves Montand. There is also an exhibition space with revolving culinary-related exhibits. On my recent visit, the room was chilly and the windows closed because the subject was chocolate. Various chefs from the region and beyond had contributed pièces montées, including a life-size, or perhaps I should say robot-sized, chocolate R2-D2. It's guaranteed that you'll leave this museum with an appreciation for the work of the 19th century chefs, as well as for the man who transformed that professional kitchen. Now, while I have lived in Paris and visited often and spent a year and have a degree from Nancy in the East, I have always harbored a personal soft spot for the hills of the Côte d'Azur, perhaps because of my own memory lane. Almost 40 years ago, I made my first trip to this region in the 1970s. I was headed to Saint-Paul-de-Vence with my friend Samuel Clemens Floyd III to spend a week with his good friend, 20th century literary icon James Baldwin. The hamlet in which Baldwin lived, Saint-Paul-de-Vence, resonates for the French. The small, walled town in the hills overlooking the Mediterranean has long been a touchstone in French history. For folks of more recent vintage, the small village perched on the side of one of the area's hills became known as a mecca for writers, artists, and actors in the second third of the 20th century. Vive les boules, parce que ça roule, tout coup de fil, c'est bon, il faut me carrer. Vive les boules, parce que ça roule, tout coup de fil, c'est bon, il faut me carrer. Vive les boules, parce que ça roule, tout coup de fil, c'est
The town center and entranceway to the old village is typical of the south of France and signaled by a café, here called the Café de la Place. And in Saint-Paul, there is, next door to it, the legendary bull ground, or the Boulodrome, where Yves Montand held court with his friends like Fernandel and Lino Ventura. Boule, or pétanque, is a way of life in the south of France. There's even a museum in nearby Valeris celebrating boule. No boule ground, though, had quite the cachet of the one in Saint-Paul-de-Vence, because of those who played there, but perhaps also because it was three steps away from the entrance to La Colombe d'Or, the legendary hostelry that was the epicenter of life in the town in the 60s, when it was host to such notables as Picasso, the Rolling Stones, Quincy Jones, Sidney Poitier, Frank Sinatra, and César, who lived nearby, and for whom the French Oscars, which he designed, are named. In short, the literati and glitterati of the second half of the 20th century from two continents. Je cherche après Titine, Titine, oh ma Titine. Je cherche après Titine et ne la trouve pas. Je cherche. Then, La Colombe d'Or was run by Baptistine Robinson, perhaps better known as Titine. Her husband, who was an art lover, traded art for food and amassed an extraordinary collection of art from 20th century masters like Matisse and Picasso, all of whom lived in the area and adopted the place as their own. When in the 1940s the area became a free zone, artists flocked. Baldwin arrived in the 1950s, along with such other artists as Yves Montand, and Titine became his protector and Gallic godmother. When I met her, During those few days in that heady time, she was a classic Mediterranean grandmother, all dressed in black, but with a twinkle that belied the somberness of her garb. She took a liking to me, perhaps because I speak French, and I've always savored that memory. She loved Baldwin and guarded him, as she did all of her famous clients, with the ferocity of a mother tigress. I've always thought, though, that she had a special soft spot for Baldwin. He lived down the road, and it was often his habit to head up to the bar at the inn for a pre-prandial drink or to catch up on the news of the town that he had adopted as his own and that had adopted him. It was an extraordinary time indeed. I will never forget heading up for cocktails one evening with the group, only to be astonished to see Yves Montand lounging on one of the small bar stools. Baldwin naturally at home, greeted him and asked for his wife. How Simone? I started. That would be the actress Simone Signore. Amazing. It was very, very high cotton indeed for the very, very naive 20-something black girl from Queens. Meals at the restaurant were no less star-filled, and a meal overlooking the Mediterranean from the hillside perch remains in my mind as vividly as though it were yesterday. The food was simple, satisfying, and delicious, and the surroundings dazzling. I can close my eyes and still see the stone wall of the terrace on which we ate, and the occasional glints of the sun off the water in the far distance. 
I don't remember the exact menu, but I do recall fish grilled to a turn, flavored with the herbs of the region, stunningly simple vegetables like bell peppers and eggplant, and that it was all served up with great, great flair. It was a potent time, a formative time. Decades later, long after I'd authored a book called The Welcome Table, and even after I began this radio broadcast, My Welcome Table, I found out that the table at Baldwin's house, where I'd had my first taste of truly Provençal Pistou, and where I'd been embraced and accepted as a baby sister, was called by him his welcome table. It was a moving moment, and one that will always give Saint-Paul-de-Vence a very special spot in my heart. So, until next time. Keep good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone. good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone.